This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by the Avram Davidson Universe, a new podcast devoted to the works of acclaimed fantasy and science fiction author Avram Davidson. Davidson, winner of the Hugo Award, the Edgar Award, and three-time winner of the World's Fantasy Award, has been called the greatest American short story writer of the 20th century by Michael Swanwick. Davidson was born on April 23rd, the same day as Shakespeare, and Season 3, Episode 8 of the Avram Davidson Universe is a special 100th birthday episode that includes a never-before-published Avram Davidson story called What Time Is It? Then stick around after the story as host Seth Davis discusses the legacy of Avram Davidson with special guest Ben Railton, professor of English and coordinator of American Studies at Fitchburg State University. Railton is the author of five books, most recently We the People, the 500-year battle over who is American, and he also writes a regular monthly column for the Saturday Evening Post. So again, the podcast is called The Avram Davidson Universe, and you should all go check out Season 3, Episode 8, over at avramdavidson.com. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 540 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr Kirtley, author of the book Save Me Please and Other Stories, which is available now on Amazon.com. We had a great conversation about the book back in episode 500, so definitely check that out if you missed it. And today on the show, we'll be discussing the new movie Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves, directed by John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein. And this will include spoilers for everything in the movie, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got our producer, John Joseph Adams. He's the editor of Lightspeed Magazine and the series editor of The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, and he's also edited more than 40 other anthologies. Lately, he's been editing Dungeons & Dragons books for Monty Cook Games and Kobold Press. So, John, welcome back. Always good to be here. Sorry, I got cursed by a hag, so my voice is a little raspy today. <laughs> yeah, uh, John's currently battling an upper respiratory infection that he got at Dungeons & Dragons <laughs> Honor Among Thieves. So, Damn you, d and salute you, John, for the sacrifices you make for this <laughs> podcast. Okay, then next up, we've got Michael Whitwer who you may remember from our panel on the history of Dungeons & Dragons back in episode 170, and it's our panel on the art of Dungeons & Dragons back in episode 331. He's the author of the book Empire of Imagination, Gary Gygax and the Birth of Dungeons & Dragons, and co-author of the books Dungeons & Dragons Art and Arcana, A Visual History, and Heroes Feast, the official D&D cookbook. His new book, The Legend of Dritt's Visual Dictionary, is out now. And his middle grade fantasy novel, Vivian Van Tassel and the Secret of Midnight Lake, will be out in August. So, Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, David. It's great to be back. Uh, great to see you, John. Or great to hear from you, I should say. And uh, great to see you, Ben. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and also joining us today is Ben Riggs, who you may remember from our feature interview back in episode 521. He's the co-host of the tabletop gaming podcast, Plot Points and author of the book Slaying the Dragon, A Secret History of Dungeons and Dragons, about the downfall of gaming giant TSR. His work has also appeared on Geek and Sundry, in the horror gaming magazine The Unspeakable Oath, and on NPR's To the Best of Our Knowledge. 
So, Ben, welcome to the show. Hail and well met, fellow travelers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I want to start off by talking about previous efforts to adapt Dungeons and Dragons mm. for film and television, starting with the Saturday morning cartoon from the 80s. <laughs> so, Michael, did you ever watch that cartoon growing up? I grew up with that cartoon, David. I loved it. I remember it. Um, it, it must have been kind of reruns because, you know, 83 is a, a touch early for me, but not that early. I remember it vividly. Um, I do. I, I've, I've, of course, since seen all of the episodes. But um, part of the experience for me was that I, I grew up with the toys. I had the Fortress of Fangs, for <laughs> crying out loud. So, um, yeah, I, I knew the series really well and loved it as a kid and then loved it again as an adult. Wow, I never had any of the toys. <laughs> I didn't even know there were to toys. Bring this up. I'm going to have to bring this up with my parents. <laughs> that was a, yeah. So not only were there toys, uh, they, were, they were by LJN. They were great toys, uh, especially for the time. But I'll just point out one of, the, one of the curiosities, one of the great mysteries at the time with the toys was that they made all of the ancillary characters, like Sir Strongheart. They made Warduke. They never made the main cast. Which was always this big, what? yeah, this big mystery about the LJN toys is why didn't they ever make the main cast? And I think there was some weird legal or IP <laughs> reasons around it, but uh, they finally just made those actually, uh, kind of a retro <laughs> version. So um, yeah, be on the lookout for those; they're out there now. <laughs> I have a feeling, actually, now that you mention it, I might have had. There was like a knight with like silver, like a silver breastplate and a brown mustache or something. Was that one of them? Strongheart. Yeah. I think I did have that one actually. So yeah, he was a paladin on like one episode, and and it was just it was re- it was really it was odd. It was really odd. Like again, you could get all of this ancillary stuff from the show, um, but yeah, you couldn't get you couldn't get the main cast, uh, the, the main kids that of course you know go on the roller coaster and then go to the realm and then you know. Um, so really odd, but yeah, I, I did grow up with the show and just loved it as a kid, and, and again, I still do. I, I have a lot of warm memories. Oh yeah, I guess we should explain if if anyone. Any poor benighted souls out there haven't seen the Dungeons and Dragons Saturday morning cartoon from 1983. Yeah, there's a, a group of kids and they sort of they go on a roller coaster and get sucked into the Dungeons and Dragons world. And so, yeah, I was I was that age when I was watching it. And I just really re- vividly remember how how scary and serious it was. I mean, you, at that age, just the idea of being lost and not mm-hmm. being able to get home. And um, I remember, you know, sort of the format of the show is that each episode they're uh, they have some chance to get home and then it's like Gilligan's Island where mm. everything goes wrong and they end up still stuck in the Dungeons and Dragons world. But as a kid, that that format was not apparent to me. And so <laughs> every single episode, I was like, oh, my God, maybe they're going to get home this time. And, you know, I was just really invested in it. Um, so how about Ben? Did you did you grow up watching this cartoon? No, but I have a half an answer for Michael. Um <laughs> So, so Jeff Grubb, a, a TSR designer, told me that that what happened with the toys was mm. um, TSR saw that LJN was was doing a good uh, good job making toys based on the D and D cartoon. Uh, so they went into competition with them and started making some of their own. But in order to not conflict with uh, their contract with LJN, um, TSR's toys could not move. They, they, hmm. the, the TSR staff called them non-action figures. Um, hmm. The, the bendies. Have, yeah, exactly. And that, yeah, that the rubber bendies, some, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that may have something to do with why they only made like half the series. But I, I will confess, I'm, I'm not speaking <laughs> ex-cathedra here. This is an interview from like five years ago that I'm, I'm half remembering, even though I wrote it up. Uh, but that may have something to do with it. That said, I w- I'm just a, either a little older, a little younger. Somehow I just missed that. I was Maybe hmm. I was watching Masters of the Universe or something. I'm a 1978 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> baby, so it should have been prime time for me, but I just missed it. Hmm. 
And, and so you've never seen it, or did you I catch it later? I never saw it. <sighs> it's so good. Is it? Okay, I'll, I'll go to, I'll yeah. watch it. Based on that recommendation, well, I'll give it a shot. Because actually, because John, um, for my birthday, when I was living in L.A., so probably around 2005 or something, um, bought me the box set. And so I watched it all then. And uh, I still thought it was really good. I mean, it's not like scary to mm-hmm. me anymore, but uh, I thought it's it's still a lot of fun. Um, John, have you ever actually watched this cartoon? Yeah, or you just knew that I liked it. No, no, I yeah, I've, I I think I probably saw all of them, you know, on TV back in the day. Um, you know, it's hard to it's hard to know if you were uh, saw a complete run of things back at that time period, but yeah. I certainly I certainly you know grew up with it um and uh yeah i know i mean it's like looking back on it it's like it's hard to believe that that ever existed it's like D at that time to have made it to the point where a, a cartoon could have been made and then broadcast to like a national audience it just seems mind-boggling to me that 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 D had reached that level of saturation at that time um but uh but yeah i mean it it, it it was pretty good and um you know it's interesting uh even younger people who didn't grow up with it who encounter it now uh apparently can engage with it just fine because uh um my stepdaughter grace um when she was like 8 uh she uh was watching um avatar the last airbender like incessantly and then eventually we got her the uh the we went ahead and got her the box set of the D cartoon and you watch it just, just, just like Avatar. You know, it's like to her, it was like as good as Avatar. Um, <laughs> that's that's interesting because yeah, like now that you mention it, is because eighty three was still. I don't know if that was still peak Satanic Panic, but right? It was still kind of in that area. So the idea that you know, at the same time that this game is being blamed for suicide and yeah. Satanism and all this stuff, it's also like you can watch it on TV right. on Saturday mornings, like. That is kind of a funny yeah. thing to have happened. Yeah, and Venger probably doesn't help with that either. Like, <laughs> he's, he's, he looks pretty evil and demonic and stuff, you know? So yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. The two main, you know, I, 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 can, I can confirm, and I'm sure Ben can as well, <laughs> that this is in the height of when they're still trying to prove that the game does not break your brain, uh, that the game is not satanic, that the books do not scream when you throw them into the fire and so forth. They're still trying to prove all of that, uh, and it's it's in the height of that time for sure. But it, but again, it, it's peaking. Eighty three is, is their is their biggest year of revenue at the time, at least. Um, but but one thing that's that's notable is they didn't go small on this show. I mean, again, mm-hmm. um, if you look at even who is in the cast of this show, you're talking about an, like an A list of voice actors. Peter Cullen oh. is the one that voices Venger, uh, Optimus Prime. I mean, mm-hmm. like, it, it, you know, but, but even better, this is actually what I do love is that little known fact on this is that Frank Welker does the voice of uni. <laughs> and I presume it's because at the time, if you were doing an animated show, um, to prove that you, you were awesome, you had to have Frank Welker in your show. That's of course Megatron, but he also voices <laughs> 1000 other, right? And Frank Welker is, is legendary. And so, uh, the only thing, to my knowledge, the only thing he does on the darn show is, is meh, he does, he does <laughs> the unicorn. Um, but, but uh, Don Most is on the show, uh, from Happy Days. Uh, Ralph, is that his name? Um, I mean, he's Eric, you know, so Dungeon Master, Dungeon Master. Like, it, it's, it, it really is a well done kid show. And, yeah. um, the only, I think, drawback for me is that even as a kid, and I can tell you, I know this for a fact because my kids did this, after I showed them about half of it, they actually caught on to what happens in every episode, David, as you said, and they were like, "Oh, I know what's going to happen. Like they're going to like get a chance to go home, and then they're not going to go home because because you fell in the blank." So so even my kids were able to catch on that it's pretty formulaic. But what do you do? Interest, interesting though that it's a children's show structured around failure. <laughs> 
Just yeah. like, just preparing yeah. them for life, man. That's that's how things were in the eighties. <laughs> they, they didn't they didn't wrap us in bubble wrap back then. <laughs> it's all hard hard lessons. Um, but yeah, I, actually, one other thing I'll mention is that there's one episode I remember really uh, vividly where somehow a knight ends up holding a um, garbage pail lid <laughs> and using it as a shield uh, to fend off dragon breath. Mm-hmm. And I remember that made a big impression <laughs> on me. And like anytime I saw a garbage pail lid, I was like, yeah, here's my shield. <laughs> I got it now. Um, so yeah, so Dungeons and Dragons first adaptation, very strong, uh, had a bit of a decline in quality after that <laughs> so uh so there was a dungeons and dragons movie in 2000 uh featuring the talents of folks such as jeremy irons and thora birch uh marlon wayans uh i had never seen this before but i told everyone <laughs> for this panel i was gonna check it out i, wasn't <laughs> sure I was even gonna make it through make it through this because i'd heard it was so bad it's 10 percent on rotten tomatoes Oof. um and only only Ben had the <laughs> courage and fortitude <laughs> to accompany uh, accompany me on this quest. So I was ben, a fool. Your... I was a fool. <laughs> <laughs> had you ever seen this before? Did you know what you were, you were getting yourself so, in for? The first time I tried to see this was uh, the the Friday it came out in the year two thousand, and uh, some friends and I had had imbibed libations, <laughs> and we'd been planning on on getting sauced and then seeing the movie, and it was sold out. Hmm. Uh, we, we could not go to see the movie in theaters. And, uh, then I heard it was bad and never bothered to see it again. I finally saw it about, uh, I'm going to say 15 years ago and I was duly horrified <laughs> and I, I went and rewatched it for, for this, uh, recording and it is 90 minutes. I will never get back. <laughs> I, I, th- on the one hand, there were some things that were better than better than I remembered, but in the main, everything was worse than I recalled. <laughs> um, like Marlon Wayans, I'm like, he's trying, he's trying <laughs> there. You know, uh, there there were a few scenes with him where I was actually like, "You go, Wayans, you go." But <laughs> the the effects have aged so poorly. The plot is such nonsense. Um, the writing is so bad. <laughs> it, it's really hard to find any any pearls among the dust there. <laughs> Are you suggesting that Jeremy Irons was not trying? Because he was trying so hard. <laughs> he was trying so hard that he's terrible. It, it, it's, it is a movie where you've got good actors being terrible. And yeah. I, I, I suspect there's many reasons behind that, but it, it is a remarkably bad film. I, I have to agree. Have well, to agree. We, weirdly, Jeremy Irons and Thora Birch, who are by far the best known and probably best actors in this movie, are by far the worst <laughs> part of the movie. It's like really weird through the mirror kind of thing. And actually the guy who plays the main character who I'd never heard of mm-hmm. before is actually not bad. I concur. So it's sort of Yeah, what's the deal with him being cast as the main character anyway? That this this guy that's like a nobody basically. I I think he played Jimmy on Lois and Clark. Uh you know, the 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 one the junior reporter Jimmy. Um I think he played I think that's where he came from. That 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 was the only thing I remembered ever seeing him in. But uh, I, I, I just want to say, uh, not only did I refuse to rewatch this movie for this panel, I begged Dave to not watch it and also not to urge anyone else to watch it because it's not something that should be encouraged. Yeah, no, definitely I'm not encouraging anyone. <laughs> I, have, I have to say, like, go, knowing that it was 10% on Rotten Tomatoes and having um, Ben sent this article about the backstory of uh, of how this movie came to be, which is really a sort of fascinating comedy of errors kind of thing. This was like not as bad as I was expecting it to be based on all that stuff. And I have watched for this podcast, 
more bad 80s sword and sorcery movies than probably anybody on earth (laughs) and i would not say that this is notably worse than like hawk the slayer and the sword and the sorcerer and conan the destroyer and things like that so i think if this came had come out in the 80s Mm -hmm. uh people would remember it fondly its problem was it's main well one of its problems was coming out one year before peter jackson's fellowship (laughs) ring ditto which is like a billion times better um lots of stark contrast yeah oh oh, but but so but michael actually you mentioned that you you didn't rewatch this but you have had seen it at some point in the past yeah i I, i've seen this you know what's the first thing i did actually i think you you had pointed out to us you know it it had 10 percent on rotten tomatoes so believe it or not what i did um because i'm like was it really that bad and so (laughs) i um uh i i did a calibration test on rotten tomatoes to see like well if this is 10 percent, what's worse so Mm -hmm. i looked up highlander 2 which is my calibration test for Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> and that was at zero. So I'm like, oh, okay. Then we're good. <laughs> we're, we're good. We're good. The, the 10% sounds about right. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the, film is, the film is terrible. You know, here's the thing. When it comes to films, I'm – or, you know, honestly, any creative work um, – and, and I, I get this way as I – frankly, as I do more and more work of my own, I'm really not a hater. I have to say, I'm not a hater. Mm. I, I, you know, I, it is really hard to write good books, right, to make mm. good movies. And so – you know, I, I actually kind of look through everything through that lens these days, you know, and so I can th- I try to find the good in these things, <laughs> kind of like Darth Vader, I guess. Right. I'm always trying to find the good in, mm-hmm. uh, in, in these films. But I, I'll say um, I think there's some things to be said about it. It, it, it is a terrible film. Again, I'm not going to make excuses for for what it is. I think everything Ben said, I, I, the, the, the script is just an abomination. <laughs> there's just there's just many, many pieces that are that are pretty broken that a lot of people have talked about. Um one thing I'll give it credit for. Uh, let, let me give it a, just just give it a, a piece of credit for a second. There was a long time, and I, I could, we could talk about the actually the original uh, genesis of D and D movies, even pre the animated series when Gary was trying to get a movie made in Hollywood. By the way, the, the movie that they actually had James Goldman write a script for for a half million dollars hmm. uh, was actually a very similar plot as the animated series ended up being. It was a really similar kind of you had uh, it was kids that stepped into this D and D world, right? Mm-hmm. And here's what the, here's the credit I'll give it is that um, the 2000 film did not feel like they needed to for a long time it was it was kind of assumed that oh if you're making a D and D film it has to be a film about kids stepping into this mm-hmm. other world because of the game because you it's a role assumption game and so forth um, and I give them credit that they didn't follow that they didn't mm-hmm. feel like they had to make a movie that they, it could just stand on its own with its own lore now it would have helped if they actually used D and D lore. <laughs> that would have been that would have actually been a plus, but I will give it credit that it didn't feel like it had to follow that trope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, not to get too far ahead, but when we when we get to Honor Among Thieves, there are some kind of striking parallels between this movie and Honor Among Thieves. Like Honor Among Thieves is like a way, way, way better done take on the same kind of thing where you have this group of you know thiefish people and they steal stuff and. <laughs> And it ends up being to, you know, some super powerful thing. And it's sort of a comedy and sort of action-y and, you know, roguish, likable, at least in principle, protagonists <laughs> and stuff like that. So um, I could see I could see some of this in the DNA um, <laughs> of, of this new movie. Um, but I also want to mention the other main Dungeons & Dragons movie adaptation, <laughs> that I, at least that I'm aware of, is this Dragonlance movie from 2008. Uh, this is a cartoon. <laughs> I don't think anybody else besides me was willing to watch this. <laughs> no, I, I've seen it. I've seen it. Okay. So what is your take on the Dragonlance movie? Well, <laughs> um, first of all, it was at that odd haircut stage of animation where my recollection is that it has some like, 
it has some like CG elements for Takesis, the the multi-headed Tiamat type dragon. Yeah. Well, all the all the dragons and all the draconians are all mm. CGI. Right. So it has this like like like, like mix of animation CGI. and like it, so I remember it has this kind of like it's this weird in between stage of like technology. I remember that. Um, I remember loving that Kiefer Sutherland. I think plays uh, right. He plays uh, uh, what, yeah. what's his name? The 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 um um the brother wizard. Um, goodness gracious. Race. race thank one. thank you, Raceland. Um, and he's always coughing, and he's he's got his tea and all that <laughs> stuff. Um, so I kind of love that. You know, honestly, I didn't. It, as far as what it was, I I didn't I didn't hate it. Let me just put it this way. Um, there that that is actually a really complex story to tell in like mm, less than ninety minutes. I think is what that movie is. Uh, I mean, there's a lot going on in the first Dragonlance book. Um, so, you know, honestly, like I thought for what it was, especially if that's geared more to our younger audience and it's supposed to be just a cartoon of this, um, I, like I thought it was fine. It was, it was fine for what it is. Again, I, 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 I give a lot of running room to these, these properties these days, but these, no, no, I, I'm, I'm actually with you, Michael. I mean, like, again, I'm not recommending anyone run out and watch it, but I mean, I wasn't sure I was going to make it through either of these at all. Hmm. And I had no trouble sitting through them. I mean, like, and this one, I mean, it's not a travesty or anything. Like all the characters look like, look like they're supposed to. It's faithful to the story. As far as I remember, I mean, it's just like the animation is like Saturday morning cartoon quality animation. This is not feature film quality Hmm. animation. Um, And, and like you're saying, it, it tries to do way too much story in way too short of a time. I, I didn't even remember how much story there was in Dragons of the Autumn Twilight. I sort mm. of, in my memory, and I haven't read it in 35 years or something, but I, I thought it was going to end with um, you know, with them defeating the Black Dragon and Zach Saroth. And so then that happens, and then it keeps going. And I really think they, sh- they should have just told the story up to that point and fleshed it out a little bit more. It, it, it's um, a pretty meandering story, um, you know, in, in a lot of ways. And, and again, there's a lot that I would say that's just wonderful about that book and that original trilogy in particular. Uh, but right, you, you're correct that like it's, it's, it is not an easy story to adapt. Let's just put it that way. It's not a simple story to adapt, especially in that kind of time. So that's kind of the lens I look at it through is like, you know, this was kind of a good spirited attempt to try to make this work in a feature film length cartoon um, and it actually had a couple of good actors. Again, Kiefer Sutherland wasn't the only star in that. There was like a couple of, of notable actors that I'm, I'm totally blanking on. I haven't looked at it. I haven't seen that movie in, in probably 10 years. And I probably haven't read actually Dragons of Autumn Twilight in 10 years. So, um, but I, I, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't bad. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't think it's going to win any, like if you don't know Dragonlance, I don't think this is going to make you a Dragonlance fan. But for someone like me who read those books over and over as a kid and just loved them, it was sort of a pleasant experience for me to be reminded of the story. You know, it was all right. I, you know, it's okay. But, uh, you know, again, I'm not re- recommending anyone um, run out and watch it. Uh, and then, so then after that, there were two more Dungeons and Dragons movies. These were, I think, straight to video things. They don't even seem to be available anymore. Wrath of the Dragon God and The Book of Vile Darkness. <laughs> I'm assuming nobody... Does anybody know anything about these at all? Only, only uh, one. Oh, please go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say. Uh, uh, I when you started to talk, I was like, "Wait, what?" Uh, but then when you said the names of them, I'm like, "Oh, wait a minute! I think I have heard of those, but I never did see them." So, go ahead, Michael, if you've actually got any information about them. <laughs> <laughs> it's very little. So, so here I, I did bother looking them up, and it, it, in fact, I, I had before for previous books and things I had worked on. Um, 
uh, so (laughs) the remarkable thing, the 2005 movie, what's it called? Wrath of the Dragon something or other? Dragon God. Thank you. Wrath of the Dragon God, I think. Um, That movie is an honest sequel to the 2000 film. And I couldn't help but think to myself, nothing like making a sequel to a really terrible, poorly performing film. I, I, I can't even imagine what inspired them wanting to continue the storyline with some of the same characters. I guess the, the main uh, antagonist is, um, uh, is the big uh, fighter bodyguard uh, uh, guy that uh, works with Jeremy Irons in the first film. So uh, Demera or whatever his name is. So he's evidently in that film. But what I wanted to point out the the, the 2012 movie, this is what I thought was notable. That one is actually adapted from the novel uh, book of vile darkness by Monty oh. cook and um and robert schwalb now so that did get my attention now, i haven't seen the film so i can offer very little other than to say the people that wrote that book are totally legit right and know everything about D. so i think it's really interesting that they decided to actually take a property that was was like that and finally adapt it in a way that was was meaningful anyway i i guess i'll also say so so ben sent us this link to this article by michael j tresca i mentioned about how the 2000 movie came about and I just I just read it all. I don't remember all the details, but it was basically there was this guy, Courtney Solomon, who I think was about 20 years old and was just a big D&D fan. And I think like one or more of his parents, he was in Canada, like in Toronto or something. And his parents, at least one of them was a film producer. So he kind of knew how the industry worked, but he had no experience in it. And he just really wanted to make a D&D movie in came up with all these plans and talked to CSR about it. And at first they kind of blew him off, but then he was just so persistent about it and seemed to uh, seem so committed to it that at a certain point they just, they're just like, okay, fine. And they, they sold him the rights and he, he, he started a company just to make this movie. And I think really he wanted to make a TV show, but they had to make this film or else they were going to lose the rights. Uh, and he, he ended up, he was just planning to produce it, but he ended up having to direct it. Because they couldn't, I think, because they couldn't get anyone else who really cared about it, and he'd never directed anything before, and kind of shows. But um, <laughs> you know, so you, you kind of feel. I mean, you know, he, he he seems to have had a lot of passion for the project and worked on it for a really long time, and it's too bad it didn't come out better. But you know, um, David, I do want to give him some props because I, I don't, I don't know Courtney Solomon. I know of him, you know, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. L- let me just say. He, it, according to what I've, I've seen, and I, I did, I did read Michael Tresca's article as well. He did will this thing into existence, and for that, he deserves mm-hmm. an incredible amount of credit. I mean, to be able to get any movie movie done, to get the funding, get everything together, you, you have to give it to him for that. And to your point, um, what you see in that film, at least from my perspective, is is you see a lot of inexperience. I, I'm sorry to say, on screen. One of the biggest problems is that you see inexperience. You see inexperience in production design. Everything looks like it's brand new. Nothing is dirtied up. Um, and you see a lot of inexperience with direction. In fact, I, I mentioned, you know, Jeremy Irons. Um, I'm not saying his performance would have been awesome otherwise, but what I, what I will say, what's very clear to me, if you watch that movie and you watch the actors in that movie doing what they're doing, they don't know exactly what movie they're in. <laughs> And it's a huge problem. In other words, an experienced director uh, is clearly helming that thing and is not providing continuity about what movie they're in. So weirdly enough, you can look at Jerry, Jeremy Irons' performance in particular and say, oh my gosh, this is outrageous. The problem is clearly no one told him what movie he was in. And I, I presume what happened is here he is doing his thing. You know, Courtney Solomon's probably telling him, yep, you're doing great. And then all of a sudden they take his material away. He's not in the other scenes. 
And all of a sudden, the tone of this movie is completely different, and and it just feels really, really incongruent throughout. And that's something that happens with an experience, you know. So, but again, good for Courtney Solomon to get this thing made. That's what I'll say. Yeah. See, Ben, is there anything else you want to say about that article that you sent us? Uh, anything I got wrong or left out or anything? The, the only thing I would add is that it, it wouldn't surprise me if the uh, sequels were also made so that he could retain rights. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there was actually some sort of legal dispute with with TSR or, or Wizards. I forget about mm. like they're like these aren't real movies. He's <laughs> like, yes, they are. I, I still have the rights, and I think it had to get hashed out in court. <laughs> That's a very TSR argument. <laughs> well, I, I feel um, I feel bad about uh, uh, shit talking the movie uh, so much uh, uh, after hearing this uh, this you know story about this guy who just like willed this movie into existence like that. Like that that actually is really impressive. Um, yeah, and. Too bad it didn't turn out better. I'm, I mean, get, if he loved D&D that much to make that happen, I, I can only imagine that it haunts him every day, too. Because, I mean, unless he thinks it's good. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's that's just that yeah. just makes me yeah, sad that now. That he, yeah, that I think he devoted 10 years of his life to, to this. And, yeah. You know, um, but, yeah. You I know, that's think, a yeah, novel. <laughs> that's actually, yeah, or, or, a, or a movie or something. Yeah, that, it would actually is a, would be a great story. Um, all right, but so yeah, so that's sort of the context for this movie, this new movie, Dungeons and Dragons: Honor Among Thieves. Um, so, uh, so Ben, what were your expectations going into this movie? Like, did you follow the pre-release hype or anything, or kind of were you expecting it to be good? So, uh, <laughs> Chris Pine at, was at, at some convention or another, or another, and somebody was like, "So, so D and D movie, you know, how how do you feel like your performance it, it was <laughs> in the movie?" And Chris Pine said something like, "Who can tell? <laughs> um, you know, I, I did my thing, and it's done now. And uh, is it good? I don't know." And I remember hearing that and thinking, "Well, that's somewhat disturbing." Um, <laughs> but um, as we got closer and closer to to the release. And I heard more about uh, what what early test audiences were saying. I got more and more excited. And then, because I assume that I'm the last of the four of us to to see the movie, I got to see at least Facebook reactions mm. from crowds seeing it the week before me at two o'clock on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, it was when old TSR hands, like like TSR's first employee, went to see it mm. and posted on Facebook that it was good. Uh, that, that was certainly encouraging. And then other people were like, my kids loved it. And I'm like, okay, if, if the kids like it <laughs> and the old TSR hands like it, uh, that's fantastic. Cause again, I, I will tell you that, uh, it, it is my, my selfish hope that this movie, uh, signals some sort of new dawn in the cultural dominance of Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. Um, cause the game has been going from strength to strength for, for, I'm going to say at least the last nine years um, and a, a finally having a good mass market uh, vehicle for D and D again, I don't know what's going to happen with it, but it, it can only help. I think um, what do you, what did somebody else think? Hmm. Yeah. Well, well, cause I, I mean, I, I don't think I paid any attention to this. I, I, I think if I, knew that there was a D&D movie. I just assumed it was going to be bad. I mean, just given the <laughs> track record and, you know, just, just, ho- it seems like Hollywood just, I don't know. I, I wasn't, um, I didn't have a lot of faith that they would do a good D&D movie. And that, cha- you know, then I saw the first trailer and I thought the first trailer, I was like, wow, this actually looks like it might be good. I actually remember I sent it to John and I said, this actually looks like it might be good. And 
he didn't respond. So I don't know how he felt about the first trailer. But, <laughs> uh, I was at least sort of guardedly optimistic at that point. Uh, see, John, am I am I misreading your uh, uh, reaction there? Or, no, or no, I. I no, I mean, I, I don't, I don't remember when that happened. When that that I just didn't reply or whatever. But um, you know, I I was uh, I was extremely skeptical about the movie from the first time I heard about it, and I was just like sort of um, living with this dread that it's like, oh god, it's going to happen all over again. I'm going to get so excited about this D and D movie, and then it's going to be terrible, you know. And so like I I kind of had my head in the sand about it for a while. Um, and, uh, even when you reached out to me about doing this panel, I was, I was real skeptical. Uh, I was like, I don't know if I can do it. I don't, I don't know if I can make myself go to see it. Um, but then, um, you know, there were these reviews from South by Southwest and, and, and it was looking pretty good. Like, it's like, Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. That, I mean, this sounds like, uh, there's a lot of good positive vibes there. And I'm like, uh, wasn't really, um, wasn't really confident yet, but I was like, okay, I had seen enough by that point. It's like, all right, I'll at least go see it. Um, you know, cause I mean, there was a lot of good stuff like, you know, like what well, Chris Pine, Michelle Rodriguez, uh, um, I'm not sure how you say his name, uh, uh Reggie, Reggie John's, uh, page. Yeah, it's Reggie. Reggie John page. Um, it's like all those people being cast. It's like, Oh, that seems cool. Um, and, uh, and you know, some of the, you know, the, the, the first trailer looked pretty good in terms of like effects and, and action and stuff. Um, I, I will say one thing that really like put me off for a while was uh, like the first movie poster they released. It was just terrible. It was like, a, it was like a travesty of graphic design. Uh, <laughs> and, and like, I just, I don't understand how it was ever released. Um, and they, what, they, what did it, what did it look like? Um, I, I'm trying to remember if it was, uh, uh well, so it, it was like, it was like photo. It was basically all of the characters like Photoshopped into like this one collage and it just like looked terrible, but like, um, but, um, the uh the the evil wizard woman uh was in like the upper left part of the screen and or uh, of the image and it's like she just looked like she was wearing bad halloween makeup um and it was just like so confusing to look at um but uh anyway the first poster was just a disaster so uh i i was off i I was um very skeptical at that point and uh it took me a while to come back around but i eventually went into it with you know i don't know middling expectations (laughs) Yeah, I, I remember after the South by Southwest reviews, you were at least optimistic enough to commit to doing this panel. Yeah. So I hope you haven't come to regret that. <laughs> uh, but before we find out, uh, Michael, <laughs> what were your uh, expectations going into the movie? Yeah, um, I was really excited. Uh, I've been really excited about this for a while, ever since I first heard about it. Um, uh, and I mean, I, I think just start, for starters, I, I, um, I really, really, I, I didn't know all the actors, but I knew a couple of them and I really, really like Michelle Rodriguez. I really, really like Chris Pine and I've kind of liked everything they've done. So I'm like, okay, that's a, that's a really good start. Um, I liked that it was going to be a big budget, big release film. And the only other thing that I knew about it, I guess when it first started bubbling up was that I knew, uh, John Francis Daly was one of the directors and involved and, and that that resonated with me because um, for anyone here that ever watched the show Freaks and Geeks. Yeah, yeah. That was one of my favorite shows when it was on. It was on, um, I don't know, somewhere when I was in high school, is my recollection. Um, it only ran one season. But of course, anyone that doesn't know the show Freaks and Geeks, it's a, it's a genius show. It's the, the entire cast is future stars, like everybody. 
Um, and John Francis Daly is the main character, Sam, I think is his name. And on that show, he plays, uh, they play D&D a few times. The, that show's got like a lot of D&D themes on it. They play D&D a few times. And so I knew he had some like background in it, whether that was him or that's just his character. But uh, long story short, um, he showed up again because I, I, I currently work on other D&D books. I study them all really carefully. And he showed up to me. He was one of the contributors to Rime of the Frostmaiden, Icewind Dale, which was a oh. 2020 adventure. And right. I remember seeing his name on the contributor list and thinking, what? what's that about? <laughs> I know who that is. What is going on? And I think that was even, I don't know if that was before, but it's before I knew he was involved in the movie. So I started to realize, oh, this person's really into this. And he's actually even working with wizard staff on their tabletop game. That's a mm-hmm. really good sign. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't really familiar. I mean, John Francis Daly, the directors, John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein have done a bunch of things together. I'm not really, I mean, Spider-Man Homecoming, obviously, I know, mm-hmm. but uh, their, their best known things other than that are a movie called Horrible Bosses and a movie called Game Night. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've heard Game Night's really good, but I haven't seen either of those. So I don't know, was, any, was anyone else familiar with their previous work at all, directing work? I didn't I mean, know they made horrible bosses. I think I, I thought that was hilarious. If it, I remember the movie right, I thought it was hysterical. Yeah, I've only seen the Spider-Man one uh, that they did previously. I didn't see those other two. Although I, I also had heard that uh, Game Night was good. But um, I remember when when the D and D movie was first announced, it was like basically saying like from the directors of Game Night, and and I was like, well, I guess I should care about that more. But I don't really know why. <laughs> like that that makes them the bright people to direct this D and D movie. But I don't know. <laughs> I have I've been wrong before. Uh, ben, were you going to say something? No, I, I, other than uh, Spider Man, I have not seen any of the other movies. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So I went into this. So I, I caught this advanced screening, uh, the first advanced screening they had, and uh, my girlfriend's parents were visiting, and they're uh, like religious conservatives. And actually, and so they have no uh, knowledge of D&D really at all. And actually, the first time my girlfriend told them that we were going to play D&D, this is years ago, <laughs> her mom said her mom just had this vague sense of it being somehow sinister and just said, you know, if anything doesn't feel right, <laughs> you just leave, you know, you just get out of there, you know, and and she's like, you know, mom, it'll, it'll be okay. <laughs> but but so they were like, you know, like, obviously not like. You know, they didn't know anything about D and D. Were maybe afraid that they would be confused or that it wouldn't mm-hmm. be for them or whatever. Um, and they they loved it. Hmm. Uh, wow! And I loved it. Uh, so just to give you an idea, that was kind of my experience of the movie. Just just to start things off, is that you know, like I'm about as into D and D as you can be, and they're about as not into D and D as you can be. And we both we all loved it. So that was kind of my experience um, watching the movie. So. Uh, uh, John, what was your experience? Just overall impressions of the movie? Uh, yeah, I, I really liked it. I, I was really pleasantly surprised. Uh, it, it's packed with Forgotten Realms lore, uh, which I was not really expecting. I thought it might uh, be sort of set in Faerun, uh, sort of by lip service, um, and and just kind of do, go and do its own thing. But no, they just they they went all in on it, and it's like, oh yeah, I can I can totally this totally feels like uh, you know playing in a campaign set in in Faerun. Um, and I mean, I think that's that's the big thing overall about it is that the movie really does feel like a D and D campaign. I mean, there's like a bunch of stuff that's like silly or, or like it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, and, uh, but that's how D and D is. And so like, it, it kind of works. Um, and I mean, I think it's like, 
it, it, it felt to me like uh like sort of like a Marvel movie in the way that it's like okay like it's like this big action blockbuster it's funny it's uh it's got all these references and things for people who will know and uh and so yeah like it does all these things right and I and I thought that uh it was just really enjoyable I, I will say that I, I do have a lot of mechanics questions and how <laughs> they resp- how they relate to what we actually see in the movie so we can talk about that later but as far as a film goes by itself. I, you know, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, definitely Marvel. Definitely like specifically Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh yeah, this seems like the the Guardians of the Galaxy formula uh, formula applied to yeah to absolutely. I think the producer, um, oh, I forget his name, but uh, I, I saw some interviews featuring him, and he had produced one of, I think I, the first Iron Man he produced, and mm-hmm. maybe some of the other ones. So I mean, yeah, there were definitely people. You know, that's that's no accident that this uh, sort of feels like a Marvel movie. Uh, how about Ben? What was your overall impressions of the movie? At last, the prophecy is fulfilled. <laughs> I, I mean, we, we've been waiting since 1974 for, for a great <laughs> breakout uh piece of D&D culture that's going to show the mainstream what the game is and how cool it can be and why we love it. Uh, the movie is a peak piece of pop art it might be the platonic ideal of a D blockbuster <laughs> um and uh, you know i would agree that the tone is guardians of the galaxy but hopefully fingers and toes crossed uh this is our iron man this this mm, is the, mm-hmm. the the thing that comes along yeah and and lays down a blueprint of how to do in D movie so we can get 10 other ones that are good mm-hmm. uh yeah and michael overall impressions well, yeah, I, I love that, Ben. Yeah, I, I hope that's exactly where where we are. Um, I loved it. Yeah, I mean, just I'm just gonna say it. I I, I just couldn't stop smiling through the <laughs> film. It is a long film, and I I I was looking at my watch, getting nervous because it was, it was going to end soon. I didn't want it to. <laughs> I wanted oh. to watch another thirty minutes or forty minutes. Um, I, I loved it. You know, honestly, to, you know, to bring it full circle. You know, Courtney Solomon may have really loved D and D, but his movie didn't. Mm-hmm. Is, that movie doesn't love D and D. It doesn't. Yeah. This movie loves D and D. It yeah. loves it, and you can feel it in every fiber and grain of the film as you watch it. Mm-hmm. I loved that the film is accessible. If if you love and know D and I mean, like, like like I think all of us here, you see Easter eggs coming out of your ears, and and it, <laughs> I, I have no doubt that it enriches the film. But nothing hinges on D and D knowledge. I think it was so right. wise to do that. Um. And and I think John, you said it first. That movie felt like a game of D and D. It yeah. absolutely did. The jokes that happen at the table, the things that occur, the plan always breaks. The plan always breaks in D and D. And everything about that movie felt like an absolutely wild, totally relatable, totally familiar game of D and D to me. And so I, I enjoyed every minute of it. <laughs> yeah, and I'll just point out the thing, like the, the thing that really jumped out at me. That's that was a sort of a callback to the 2000 movie was the the floor that turns into quicksand. I mean, that was that screamed at me when I saw it. I I was (laughs) like, oh, my God, just like the movie I saw yesterday. This is so crazy. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I won't I don't think I'll try to summarize the plot in too much detail. Mm -hmm. But basically you have, you know, know, a group of, of heroes who sort of have to, you know, go on this, you know, quest and, you know, uh, 
and they all have, you know, problems that they have to work out and they have to get along with each other and stuff. And there's like, I guess what was so, um, so cool about it for me. And also we haven't mentioned Hugh Grant is mm-hmm. in this. He's the, the, the villain. He's absolutely hilarious. Like everything he said made me laugh. I mean, I just, even from the first moment of this movie, uh, they have this great setup where, uh, it's sort of Chris Pine is in prison and he's before the like parole board, basically trying to explain why they should be granted parole. And he's he's telling his story and then he keeps saying like, is, shouldn't is, we wait some... for Jonathan? Yeah, <laughs> he keeps there's there's one per one person on the um, the board that he's waiting for. And it's just yeah, it was just so funny, like right away because i had heard it was good but as, mm-hmm. just from the just from that i was just like oh this i, I just know this is going to be a good movie someone else said it's chris pine at his piniest and i'm like That's <laughs> <fine>. <laughs> you know who my highlight of the film was uh, it's an actor i didn't know before this film um justice smith i just oh, loved yeah. everything he did he's of course this kind of low confidence uh wizard <laughs> And, and I just, I, he was so relatable to me, everything he did, like he's, he's supposed to kind of pull, you know, all of these, these spells kind of out of thin air. And of course, everyone can always, assume, always assumes that magic can solve like any problem. He's like, it's mm-hmm. not, it's not like that. It's such a relatable character. And I just, I loved how he played it. I just thought he nailed it in everything he did. Yeah. So we, I feel like we could just go on and on yeah. about like the, the humor works, the action works, the special effects are great. The pacing is great. Um, yeah, like, like as a action comedy movie, I think this is just perfect. I mean, um, particularly as a comedy, I was just laughing so much throughout it. Um, so I don't know. Does anyone else have anything else before we get into criticisms or anything, anything else? I would like to point out. I really want to call out. Yeah. I'd like to point out one other strength, which is given the complete given all the things that this movie does given that it explains both this this new fantasy world a rather complicated plot and also has to make you know D rules nerds happy um mm-hmm. it it does it pretty seamlessly and gracefully um it, there's never a like a, a rough patch where you're like oh okay now, now we're getting 10 minutes on the backstory of this uh city you know mm-hmm. um it's just all seamlessly put in there and uh given how much it accomplishes i, I just wanted to point out that I, I thought that that alone that act of graceful exposition was really impressive to me hmm. yeah uh michael any other uh Highlights you want to mention before we get into criticism? Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't I couldn't agree any more than than what just what Ben just said. It, it's just um, I I thought there's so many ways to to mess up a film like this. There is there's so many ways, and they they avoided virtually all of them. Um, you know, again, they they could have given you those ten minutes of action. They could have done all of these different things. They made it about characters. They made it about snappy dialogue, about people, about a fun adventure that anybody can enjoy. And again, as I said earlier, you want Easter eggs. It had Easter eggs coming out of its ears, <laughs> right? I mean, and but again, that's so enriching to long term D and D people because, as, as Ben just said, you have to keep you know the 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 rules people happy. There's so many people you have to keep happy. But I, I feel like their their focus was correct, and and so yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't say enough. I could talk all day about how much I really mm-hmm. liked it, and I, I so badly want to see it again, and I will soon. Yeah, well, I don't. Maybe we should just mention some of the what were some of the Easter eggs that stick out. Like, that's how, what were your top two or three Easter eggs that stick out in your mind? 
I have a question about the flag that was on uh, Hugh Grant's getaway ship at the very mm. end of the movie. Did anybody else notice the flag on that ship? Mm-mm. I did not. No. It looked an awful lot like the Greendale Community College flag <laughs> on the TV show Community, like which, if you don't know, kind of looks like an anus. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm seeing the movie again on and They Wednesday. do play D&D on that show. And they play D&D on that show. It has yep. a long nerd pedigree. So I, that is the thing that I'm going to look out for. Because <laughs> At first I was like, that kind of looks like the, the <laughs> Empire symbol from, from Star Wars. Then I look at it a little closer and I'm like, no, that looks like a Greendale Community College flag. <laughs> so I hope that's it. But th- that's the number one thing that I was left thinking about when I left the film as far as Easter eggs went. Well, so the big Easter egg that you you cannot ignore and deny. So we started this conversation talking about the 1983 animated series. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? So what do you know? Lo and behold, when they get into the arena, which, by the way, that arena concept in Neverwinter, those of you that know the, the Dritz series uh, and know the Neverwinter trilogy specifically about the Dreadring, uh, the Dreadrings of Thay, if you know about that, it was a pretty brilliant adaptation of what that whole story is about. So, again, if we've got any uh, Dritz uh, nerds on the phone, or listening today, um, the Dreadring adaptation of what they did with that Coliseum thing was like super creative. But so are, of course, the heroes of the animated series show up mm-hmm. in the Coliseum and you're like, what? Um, I thought that was that was super funny. And I also love that, again, it wasn't overstated in a way that if you didn't know what that was about, it didn't hurt anything. They didn't overplay mm-hmm. it or whatever, but they were kind of in passing. But this was this kind of like fellow group navigating this maze in this coliseum full of, of, of monsters. I thought that was beyond hilarious. Yeah, I, I remember my, after the movie, my girl, I forget what she said exactly, but she mentioned that that group of heroes, you know, something that, that she liked about it. And I was like, oh, you know, those are from the cartoon, right? She didn't know that. So even, you know, yeah, like it totally worked either way. You know, if you yeah. didn't know they were from the cartoon, it was just so enjoyable. You didn't feel like you were uh, yeah. missing anything. Yeah, same same with Christy when uh, you know Christy and I went to see the movie together, and 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 she knew that there was something about those characters, but she didn't know <laughs> what it was because uh, she she didn't recognize them from the cartoon. Um, I I can't think of any other Easter eggs to mention, but uh, as, as far as the other uh, things to sort of uh, single out for praise, uh, I, I really loved uh, the character of Zenk. Uh, I wish he was in it more. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he he's he's just like hilarious the entire time. And like speaking of Guardians of the Galaxy, he was giving me big Drax vibes uh, yeah, in yeah. terms of like how he how how he uh, sort of is portrayed. Um, and not how I expected that actor to, to roll with that character. So I, I was like, you know, good for you, man. Like that, you know, um, not exactly, uh, the guy from Bridgerton. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, you know, what I loved about his performance, actually, uh, uh, uh page. Um, one thing I, that really resonated with me about that is that if, if you know the old rules about, um, alignment, so yeah. if you're a paladin, you have to be lawful good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, in the, and in old rules, the, the my recollection of the way it phrases it is kind of like, oh, if you're lawful good, you cannot even travel, let alone like talk to anyone yeah. that's not also lawful good. So one thing I loved about his his reading, his whole performance, was that he brings this absolutely unbending like lawful goodness to everything he does, and of yeah. course how it actually plays against kind of this real world group of misfits. I thought it was so brilliant. I, I thought everything he did was genius. Um, it, that was something that really struck me. And again, it, for me, it actually resonated with those old rules about how unpra- impractical it is to yeah. have a paladin in your group. If they have to be lawful <laughs> good, because no one else is going to be lawful good in the group. That's how it always worked. So. 
Yeah, I guess where I'll, I'll, I want to take this next is to talk about the monsters, because there are a bunch of monsters in here, which are, you know, classic D&D yeah. monsters that we all have known for years, but have never been in, in any movies mm-hmm. before. Uh, a, because it would violate the D&D copyright in some cases, and B, just because the special effects, yeah. you know, weren't there in the 80s or whatever. Um, but so wait, I have a little list here of some of them. Uh, but you can no, where, where's my list? But you got your Displacer Beast. Mm-hmm. Oh, here we go. Uh, gelatinous cube, owl bear, intellect devourers, and mimic, and it was just so great to yeah. see these in you know live action big budget film. These things that you kind of pictured your whole life, and to see them come to life was was just so cool. Oh, and I, I love the I love the scene with the intellect devourers too. When like it's like uh, it's like they're talking <laughs> about them, and they're like, oh, they're they're attracted to you know uh, creatures with a higher intelligence, uh, and then so they all just kind of scoot up against the wall and the intellect devourers just all walk right past them because like they're a bunch of dumbasses you know um although i have a bone to pick with the D beyond character sheets because none of the characters are actually dumbasses by according to those there so. you go yeah the stats are, <laughs> stats are way too high stats are way too high like are uh, you kidding you me everybody in that everybody in that movie dumped intelligence okay like don't give me this 16 <laughs> intelligence for any of them you want to just explain about the D&D Beyond yes. character sheet? Uh, so, yeah, on D&D Beyond, um, if you search for Thieves Gallery, they have uh, they have uh, uh, character sheets uh, as if um, they were statting out, um, you know, a sort of a monster stat block for all the characters in the movie. So you can go and look at those. Um, I I do kind of question them releasing this before the movie because, like, for instance, if you scroll down and you see that Forge is neutral evil, it's like, well, I mean... I, I thought he was one of the party, but maybe he's not. Maybe he's a villain. Um, and then um, it turns out he's a little bit of both. Um, but then, and then you, you know, you see Safina is also neutral evil. Um, but um, but yeah, like a lot of these, like I mean, I think um, uh, Edgen uh, in uh, or Edgen or however you say his name, um, him in particular, like his stat block doesn't really match what we see in the movie at all. I don't think so. Uh, he, that that one's real questionable. But yeah, man, 14 strength, 16 dex, 14 con, 14 intelligence, 16 wisdom, 18 charisma. What the hell? Yeah. How did you get that? <laughs> I was like, who is this dungeon master? They, they, <laughs> they let them get away with some. You know, it's, it's so funny you mentioned that, John, because I, I was thinking, you know, it's right. Like, I felt like they had to like kind of stat them up. But I'm like, no, the, the whole fun of this is that these are heroes in quotes, right? They're heroes. Yeah. These are, But these are more mystery men than the Fellowship of the Ring, right? Yeah. But, like, these are misfits. And that's what makes the fun and the misadventure so fun. Like they're tripping over things and they're not mm-hmm. that great. And and to me, there's a real magic in that with D&D because everybody, well, let's be honest, you all start at level one, right? Mm-hmm. So everyone can relate to being that low level, that low level party that can barely take out, you know, kobolds or whatever. We've all been there. And, you know, that's actually the genius of even serious IP for D&D. Like, um, David, you mentioned earlier, uh, Dragons of Autumn Twilight. It's very clear in that film that these are like level one, level two type adventures. Mm-hmm. They're on the run the whole time. They don't, they don't beat up anything very well. And that, that's what this group feels like. This group feels like they're really good. You know, like, uh, Michelle Rodriguez's character is obviously really good, you know, but, mm-hmm. but they're, they're not great at all. They're definitely not great. Well, mm-hmm. you know, the funny thing about the bard too is that, like, I actually, after the movie, I was like, let me go recheck that character sheet and make sure that he was actually statted out as a bard because it's like he never actually casts a spell uh, unless it was like super subtle, you know, like unless it's like, you know, you gotta really kind of parse it exactly to be like, oh, yeah, no, he very subtly cast a spell. We didn't even notice, you know, he just <laughs> uh, because it's like I thought like, well, 
maybe he was just sort of in Bard's clothing, but he was a rogue. Although he wouldn't have actually been that great of a rogue either, as far as what we see in the movie, because he's not very skilled. It doesn't seem like, um, you know. Uh, but uh, but yeah, no. I mean, they have him started out as a bard. Uh, I I do kind of wish that uh, like there was the scene when um, when they were breaking when they were when, when they were trying to get free from those guards, uh, him and uh, Helga, and uh, like she's over there fighting, and he's like spending the entire time trying to free his hands, right? Like so that was funny, but like why wasn't he like viciously mocking? Uh, the people that she was fighting, like that would have been perfect. Cause like, that's, you know, by, from a mechanical note, like that's a verbal component only spell. He could have cast that with his hands tied. Uh, it's a very barred thing. Um, so I was just a little disappointed that it didn't get anything like that. Since Actually, he's I just want to, I want to mention something about that scene because in the trailer, there was a line I thought was really funny where he's trying to saw through the ropes on the stairs and he says, you know what? I'm thinking there are probably sharper stairs somewhere else. <laughs> and that was in the trailer, but it wasn't in the movie. I saw it twice. And I, I watched for it the second time to make sure that it wasn't there. And it's not. I'm like, wow, that's how do you cut that? I mean, <laughs> that's a good I guess line. There's, there's, there's so many good lines in this, I guess. They, yeah. they had it was an embarrassment of riches, but um, yeah, I was, I was disappointed. Maybe the director's cut. They can bring that back. <laughs> um. Um, but let's go back to, to my thing about the monster. So Ben, and yeah. particularly the dis- the displacer beast. So um, I thought it was cool. Not the way the displacer, not the way I imagined a displacer beast. Mm-hmm. Uh, not the way I think it's described in the rules, at least in second edition, which is what I'm most familiar with. But but Ben, what did you think of the displacer beast? It was it was the tra- the not the trailer. They they released like that three minutes of footage about ten days ago, and the the displacer beasts are coming out of the bowels of the arena and, it, and at first you just see the tops of them the 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 things that do the projecting and it's like venus flytraps flickering and you're like what is that you know like like the the design of the of the creature is just so fantastic um it, you're just it's creepy you know even though it's a yeah. panther with a couple tentacles at first you're creeped out and mm-hmm. i i thought that piece of uh holding back the reveal of what was back there was really clever. Um, I thought that uh, the, the way they were deployed in the maze was also really, really cool. Um, again, like you basically had a red shirt fight one of them first to kind of explain the rules of yeah. the displacer beast so that you could then see, uh, uh, know the stakes when they're chasing down Chris Pine, which again, when I was saying earlier, this movie does so much and does it so gracefully. Um, the fact that the writers, I should really look up who the writers were. I assume it's also John Francis Daly and some other people, but uh, the fact that they thought about this clearly, like th- that's not a mistake. That's not some a- happy accident. They thought, how are we going to explain the rules of this monster to the audience mm-hmm. in order to make this scene as suspenseful as possible? And and they did it. And, uh, and again, like they, they, they had an embarrassment of riches with the, the D and D bestiary and they chose some of the coolest beasts. They used them as, as awesomely as possible. I mean, uh, the black dragon spitting what? acid, getting to see that happen. The mimic, the fat dragon in the underdark, you know? Um, well, let me, let me just ask you about the displacer beast. Cause I, I thought it, the way it was, the way I always imagined it was that it's kind of like invisible. And then there's an image of it. That's like two feet away rather than it's like it's there and then it's projecting an illusion of itself somewhere else. Oh, I have a monster manual right in front of me. Should I go grab it? Uh, Sure. Let me grab my monster manual. Let's look it up. It's third edition. This will be interesting. (laughs) Okay. I know second edition. Maybe they, I don't know if they changed it. I I know second edition, but, um, but Michael, what do you think? What do you think about all this? 
Um, yeah, I, I thought it was a really, really um, skillful implementation of D&D monsters on screen, which is hard to do. It's very hard to do. As the 2000 movie taught us, trying to do their, their Beholder very unsuccessfully, <laughs> um, and the dragons for that matter, they made early CG look like bad claymation. Um, the- well, well, let's just explain in that movie, there's a Beholder, but it's just sort of like following along behind some guards in one scene. and. <laughs> Just kind of yeah, it looks like this corner, kind of balloon balloon thing. It's it's very that's all. It's very that's odd. The only time you see not it, yeah. not well done. Um, it's it's probably obscured for that reason because it's not very well done. But the um no this one I actually yeah like I thought the displacer beast was extremely well done. My my understanding of, of the mechanics of displacer beast by the way not quite as they saw it. David, I'm with you. I always I always saw it is that the way it um the way it works is it um it's a it's a monster I think that originates in the Fey. And that it has, uh, in the Feywild, I should say, and it, and it has a natural kind of projection ability where it, it never is where it appears effectively. And so it's, it's mm-hmm. effectively like, as you say, about two feet to the right or left of where it actually is, which is why it's hard to hit. And that's actually how the mechanics work of the Displacer Beast. So the idea of it projecting itself like in a mirror image, like they mm-hmm. do in the movie, not, not quite right as I understand it, but you know what? Smarter people than me yeah. made this movie. So maybe they mm-hmm. got that right. There was, by the way, um, another one of my little favorite monsters and an old school monster that was in there that may, people may have missed. Did you, did you notice the rust monsters? There's little rust monsters on a oh, beam. What? Did you notice those? No, no. Where were yeah. they at? There's a scene where they're literally just walking down some stairs and they give you a kind of a bird's eye and there's a beam where there's these hmm. two baby rust monsters fighting over some metal something or other. Oh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. I was wondering what those, what, what those were. Those are their baby rust those monsters. Lo- I, I, it, unless okay. my eyes deceived me, those were baby rust monsters, um, <laughs> small rust monsters. And you're both right about the Displacer Beast, where it says, according to the third edition, uh, written by Skip Williams, uh, there is a light-bending glimmer that continually surrounds the Displacer Beast, making it difficult to surmise the creature's two location. Any melee arranged attack directed at it has a 50% mischance unless the attacker can locate the beast by some other means. Yeah, yeah, but I, I agree with I agree with Michael though that if they had tried to do that, I yeah. think it would have just been super confusing yeah. for yeah. like ordinary members of right. the audience. So yeah, I, I thought that I thought what they did with the dislo- displacer beast was just super cool looking, even if it wasn't exactly what uh, you know the, the the actual text says. Um, like, and so for fifth edition, for instance, it literally all it says is this monstrous predator takes its name from its ability to displace light so that it appears to be several feet away from its actual location. That is the only description that we get as other than mechanical, you know, things where it's like, okay, you have disadvantage to attack them. Um, I guess I'll answer Ben's question about the writers. Cause I, I saw that. So there were two um, other people there list. I think they're listed in the credits. Uh, I forget it. Like, if they get a story by credit or a screenplay credit or one of them does or something, but, um, but they had been on this movie beforehand and then they left cause there was hmm. another opportunity. And so it sounded like um, John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein had pretty much written the rewritten the script um, mm-hmm. entirely uh, except um, John Francis Daly mentions that uh, the scene where they bring the corpses back to life, <laughs> that, that, that an earlier version of that yeah. was from was from the earlier um, screenplay. Yeah. Which, by the way, that scene was yeah. freaking brilliant, in my opinion. Totally. I agree. Yeah. Speak with Dad. Knocked it out of the park. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's see. So, John, you said you had mechanics. Have you mentioned all your mechanics issues? Oh, no, have I have more? so many. 
Um, yeah, no. And, you know, I mean, this is the kind of thing where it's like there were things that occurred to me like during and afterward and stuff. And it's like I, I almost don't even want to talk about them because the movie is so fun. And I it, it says a lot that I am I am willing to overlook it. Uh, that these mechanics were, uh, you know, uh, ignored. Uh, but just like, for instance, um, the wild shape mechanic doesn't work the way it does in the movie exactly. It's like, okay, like I'm will, I was willing to accept that she can turn into an owlbear because that's actually awesome. And owlbears shouldn't be monstrosities. They should be beasts. It should be something a druid can turn into because it's awesome. But, uh, that part didn't bother me. What the, the thing that did bother me was that, um, in the chase scene, uh, the druid is like wild shaping, like, I don't know, like 10 different times. Like she's turning into all these different forms and it's like, mechanically it's like you can do that twice per short rest and it's like if she can just wild shape into all those different forms that many times that's so incredibly powerful i mean assuming she's not a 20th level druid which she is not according to her character sheet (laughs) um uh so uh so so that was like one um obviously a very uh deep D &D nerd uh complaint but is a thing i uh perceived um one of the things that bugged me was uh the attunement thing like it was kind of funny watching Simon struggle with the attunement of the helmet, but it's like I didn't understand really why they used that, uh, why they used that mechanic at all if it was going to be used in such a way that was so contrary to how attunement works in D and D. Like it's like okay, well, any of them could have tried to attune to the helmet according to D and D rules, but for some reason only Simon could attune to it. it. It didn't seem like the sort of helmet that required a sorcerer or a spellcaster to attune to, but I don't know, maybe that was the thing. But also the the idea that you would have to struggle to attune to an item, uh, that is not really a thing in D&D. So, uh, so that was a little confusing why they put that in there. But it made um, such good cinema. <laughs> I mean, it worked. It worked okay, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, it's just that, you know... I, hey, look, I'm, I'm, saying, I'm saying that these complaints no, don't no, really I, amount I, to I anything. Asked, I asked him. So, <laughs> Like I, I'm not calling him a Martinette or anything. I'm just, just say what I was. I'm not. I wasn't calling you names or anything. I was just. Saying, oh yeah, just good cinema. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, oh well. So the one one thing. This is actually more of a a, a, a sort of a plot complaint. But um, so there's that walking stick that um, Helga had. Uh, you know that she picked up at her house on the way out and she just happened to have and so oh it just happened to be this really powerful magical artifact that she didn't know she had like that was kind of funny but it solves so many of their problems in the story that i was kind of like eh, okay i mean that would have been cooler if you know the sorcerer could have figured out how to do that with his actual magic you know instead of just relying so much on this magical artifact they just sort of randomly happened to come across and they you know didn't even go seek out um taking but, it off the dead in the graveyard they should have taken it off the dead in the graveyard yeah yeah well and hmm. but and it's like and i i didn't love that it was also basically a portal gun you know like from the game portal <laughs> it like works exactly like that um and it's like so it's like okay i mean i love portal but like you know, in D and D, there are so many different things that we could have done with that that we could have, uh, you know, maybe not leaned on that. Um, but then otherwise, like Simon, um, you know, he's supposed to be a sorcerer, uh, and he's not, a, and he's described as not being a very good sorcerer. But at some point, he he's like casting telekinesis and Bigby's hand, which are both like pretty high level spells. But okay, so it's like okay, well, maybe he's figuring it out as he goes along. But it's like that's a lot of progress to make from being a not very good sorcerer to being able to cast those spells. Um, and also like, he seems like he has all these 
all these uh, doodads and things. Like, so it almost seemed like he was an artificer. Uh, Cause it's like, why did, why does he need all of these things in order to cast his spells? And it's like, I know there's like arcane foci and things like that when you cast a spell sometimes, but I don't know. There's just some, something weird about it. It seemed like his magic should have been felt more like it was coming from innately within him uh, than it does than the way it's portrayed in the movie, it, at least as far as like how I picture a sorcerer. So, yeah. Well, actually, let me let me mention my my one plot thing that kind of bugs me, and it, it didn't really none of this stuff really jumped out at me until my second watch. But the the one that um, sort of jumps out at me is that so they the the evil red wizard cast this spell that's yeah. going to turn everyone into zombies, and this sinister you know magic stuff is coming down out of the sky. And in order to get people out of the arena, they dump all this gold out in the oh, streets, yeah. which causes everybody to rush out of the arena to go get the gold. And I just don't understand why the people wouldn't have already been rushing out of the arena <laughs> to escape the giant evil <laughs> cloud in the sky. So that seems a little... Yeah. I mean, it's it's fine, but it seems <laughs> a little weird to me. Yeah. That's not ideal. Uh, anyone else have any... Michael, any criticisms of this? Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I think any any movie that runs two and a half hours is going to have things you say, hey, like, ah, I don't know. I don't know about yeah. that. Um, you know, I, I actually, I sort of did like the, um, you know, so the, the wizards, you know, John, you mentioned the kind of the wizards doodads and stuff like that. Yeah. I thought that was actually kind of cool because for me, it was actually just signaling a little bit the notion that in D&D, you often need spell components to sure, do spells. Sure. So my my take on that was that little wheel he had was like oh this is like mm-hmm. his little wheel of spell components because yeah it right when you play tabletop especially when it's theater of the mind you never have to really deal with this notion like oh you need like mm-hmm. sand and lavender or whatever to cast yeah, the yeah. spell um but obviously they're gonna try to portray it on on film i thought they needed like a, a clever um efficient way to do that i thought that was mm-hmm. kind of a kind of a neat way to do it um yeah, I mean, again, I think there was a lot of things that, you know, especially in terms of their level or how good are they. Like, I mean, the the Big B's hand scene is is his, it was hysterical. I, yeah. I I mean, the wizard's battle with the Big B's hand and the tumbleweed. I was like, this is the funniest thing I've ever <laughs> seen. I, I I adored that. But you're right. Like, it, I think if you were really scrutinizing it from a D and D standpoint, you'd say, well, wait a second. Mm-hmm. The, the like, what level are these people? And they they couldn't yeah, do yeah. that, but they can do this. Um, so I, mean, I think there was there was plenty of moments like that, but but it, for me it didn't it didn't take me away for anything very yeah. much. I, I really I just I was just rolling with it. Yeah, yeah, and I and again I, I really enjoyed it. You know, regardless of these things, it's just that you know they occurred to me because I'm a big time D and D mechanics nerd. Um, I will say one thing I do appreciate is that basically all of the all of the party are like level or are CR five, except for Zank who's CR 10. It's like, okay, yeah, that makes sense because he was, <laughs> he was clearly way outclassing all of them. And I mean, even they acknowledge it in the, in the movie. Um, I, I wish he was in it more though. He was so great. I will say my other criticism, I mean, this is, I don't know if I, this is criticism exactly, but I mean, it's it, there was actually, wait, what's the, there's a line where um, one of the directors I saw, he says, uh, ours is a movie that doesn't take itself with great seriousness, but it's never a spoof. And I don't think it's entirely accurate to say it's never a spoof. <laughs> I think it's sometimes a spoof. Yeah, yeah. And and like the scene where, where Zank walks away and like, is he going to go around yeah. the rock? No, no he's just he's going straight over it. Like, come on, that's a spoof there. I mean, that was hilarious, and, though, yeah. No, it definitely is hilarious. Yeah. And also the scene you mentioned with the uh, intellect of hours. Yeah, yeah. That's totally a spoof, too, where they're just like kind of insulted that the intellect right. of hours just walks by them. Now, I, so, I mean, like... Um, 
I'm not complaining. I, I love the movie. I thought it was hilarious, but it is a comedy. Yeah. And I can at least at some level, I may be a little bit disappointed that we haven't gotten a good, serious Dungeons and Dragons mm-hmm. movie. Uh, and I think this will be a good stepping stone. Yeah. That will hopefully make that ha- that we'll get, you know, we'll get like a, a serious like mm-hmm. Dritt story or, you know, a serious Dragonlance story or or something like that. I, I would um, like to briefly defend the portal gun. Okay. Okay. So now if, if a Gary Gygax biographer were here, he could correct <laughs> me. Um, but my recollection is that so much of what went into early D and D was just kind of like, what, what was Gygax consuming? What was he reading yeah. this week? What did he like? And it, again, to me, it felt very appropriate that like, Oh, portal guns. It's just something in popular culture. Now ah, it's mm-hmm. going into D and D here we go. Um, so I, for, for me that I felt like in that spirit, I enjoyed it, but mm-hmm. I, I certainly appreciate your, 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 your finer <laughs> point there. Um, but I just, I was, I just wanted to mention that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just say my other monster thing. So I was a little disappointed that we didn't get a beholder. Yeah, yeah. And there is even like a beholder in the toy line uh-huh. for this movie. Oh wow! So that's for like, the next movie, buddy. <laughs> next yeah, movie. I guess, I guess they almost certainly will <laughs> have. have I, I just think it would be. I mean, yeah. this is kind of why I would like to see a serious D and D movie because I just feel like just a fight with a like a serious scary fight yeah. with the beholder just on its own yeah. would be amazing to, to watch yeah i mean given that they lean so much into uh, forgotten realms lore i mean they should totally do something with xanathar like you know like have them uh have the have have the heroes go have to raid xanathar uh, the xanathar's guild uh, lair you know and, and and steal something from him like i mean that's kind of the plot of Waterdeep deep dragon heist or part of it anyway so it's like i mean they uh you know they were borrowing from all kinds of stuff for 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 uh you know, plot threads for this movie's plot uh, from from adventures, and so it's like, well, there's lots of stuff that they can draw from that would be cool for that. Um, and I can just imagine like the trailer dropping for like this a second movie with it just like sort of ending with a beholder emerging out of the darkness. Like that would be so badass. Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like that's a route they're gonna. I feel like that's a route they they have to go right. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I do think there's room for different tones. And just mm-hmm. like there's room for different tones in games, right? You know, yeah. any given game you play might be very slapstick and fun and comedy, or some are kind of very dungeon crawl and serious. Or you know, certainly if you you know if you play any of the the horror themes, you know, anything from yeah. Van Richten's Ravenloft, you know, you're you're usually encouraged to like kind of keep keep the jokes yeah. down because we, we want to keep the suspense high, right? That's part of it. So. Yeah, I, I think there's, I mean, they have a world of possibilities, literally and figuratively, right? They have a multiverse, in fact, of possibilities. Yeah. Um, you know, but one thing I, I really did love, and, and John, I, you know, I, I, I definitely resonate, you know, when you start talking about kind of a lot of the mechanics and stuff like that, you know, mm-hmm. were they thinking about it? You know, I had mentioned, you know, to tie up that thread I was talking about earlier where, you know, I had noticed that, that John Francis Daly had worked on uh, the Icewind mm-hmm. Dale module from 2020. You know, so I, I came to find out, and there was interviews about this later, so, you know, it all tied together. But so the reason he worked on that module is he'd worked with Chris Perkins to make sure that they had uh, a big, scary, impenetrable uh, fortress um, hmm. uh, uh, dungeon, um, prison mm-hmm. in Icewind Dale. And, and it, it's called uh-huh. Rebel's End. It's, 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 in, it's in Rime of the Frost Maiden. And, oh, okay. Uh, and I think it's actually also in the, the brand new um, uh, Keys from the Golden Vault. Ah. And so but here's the thing. Here's what I, I loved about how that worked. So they had actually go, went and made Revel's End. It's a it's a thing. It's in it's on the map in Icewind Dale. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's so they went to all the trouble of doing that. And at the end of the day, it actually they didn't need to do that. 
In fact, I guess <laughs> yeah. what I loved about it is that they went to all of this trouble developing history and background and yeah. very little of it actually even showed up on screen. But, mm-hmm. you know, true to kind of like Steve, you know, what Stephen King says, keep history in the background or whatever he says. Yeah. It felt like that. It felt like it felt like a really three dimensional world. They had done their homework, but they weren't putting it in your face. And that was an example. Yeah. They went to all of this trouble. He's even consulted on this module, worked with Chris Perkins to say, I want, I really need a prison in Icewind Dale only for it to show up in like five seconds, you know, or, <laughs> or, you know, a brief period. But that yeah. was cool. You know, that, that meant a lot to me. Yeah. You know what, you know, what's funny about that scene too. I, I had forgotten, uh, but like it, it starts the movie with them going into that prison and they, they go through these, uh, this elaborate, like, uh, uh, rigmarole to, to get this orc prisoner into this prison, right? Like, so this guy must be dangerous, right? Like, this is like, this is like a uh, Jeffrey Dahmer level dangerous. Like you don't want to <laughs> fuck with this guy. Right. And so it's like, they, they, they get, they take him to the cell and he ends up in the cell with, uh, with Helga and, and Edgen and, and it's like, but then, and it's like he says something to her. He says the wrong thing to her, and then she kicks his ass, and she like kills him, like in no no time flat. It's like what? <laughs> he was that much of a, a badass, and then she just kills no, him but like that's, nothing. That's making the point about what a badass she is, right? Because he's set up to be so scary. But she's she not that not... much of a badass, really. Uh, at least not by her CR. <laughs> <laughs> what was he a CR one? Like he? I mean, she killed him so fast. I feel like John, you should have just stayed away from the character. <laughs> no, no good has no good has come of this. I mean, I would, no. What what you're saying that makes sense. Like if if, it, if it's intended to show that like she's such a badass and she kills this guy so easily, then yeah, that works. But yeah, I, I should not have looked at the character sheets. You're right. <laughs> I, I would like to pick up uh, from what Michael was saying about uh, John Francis Daly working with Chris Perkins because it leads me to one of my only criticisms and that is it would have been really nice to see Ed Greenwood and Jeff Grubb's names in the credits oh, somewhere yeah. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, since Ed created the Forgotten Realms and Jeff yeah. Grubb describes himself as the uh, the uh, architect of the realms. Mm-hmm. The only real old hand name I saw in the credits was Kim Mohan who just recently mm-hmm. passed away. He was given the credit of Loremaster pretty, pretty mm-hmm. deep in the credits. Um, so, and, and again, I, I would say wizards has been really weak about just calling back to some of their history in their current mm-hmm. products. Um, I mean, who, who doesn't want to see, you know, one of the originators of, of a setting, uh, get recognized and mm-hmm. just, you know, show some respect. So that's one of, one of my only critiques actually of the film. Yeah, that's totally fair. Um, do you, uh, ben, do you want to just say, do you have, like last time I talked to you, you said you were sort of like, you had written 20,000 words or something of a, of a new book. Is there any uh, any uh, other news to report on that front? <laughs> Here, here's my depressing update to that story. Um, so, uh, and, and Michael, I would love to know if you've had a similar experience. But uh, as I went from voice on the phone interviewing people who and this voice on the phone is an unpublished fan that no one has heard (laughs) of to oh my god there's a book in barnes and noble and on amazon and 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 people are reading this book and oh ah suddenly uh (laughs) interviews have gotten less interesting um people Mm. i'll ask i used to ask people questions and they'd be like let me tell you about how this person's a moron (laughs) now (laughs) i ask people a question and i get long pause let let me think about what won't get me in trouble and again i i so i'm I'm, i would say i'm I'm now looking for my sources that are going to give me give me kind of the straight dope but uh I, i i do think the fact that uh i i you know i 
I, I'm more of a journalist historian now and less of a fan is negatively impacting my work <laughs> on a new book of uh, D&D history. But we'll see what happens. Oh, that's sad to hear. Mm. You need to uh, assume a fake identity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or just get them drunk at a con and put, up, put an MP3 player under their nose. <laughs> okay, so you cast suggestion on them as soon as you get on the phone. <laughs> Hey, hey Ben, I have the same. I, I I have had the same experience and installed at about twenty thousand words myself. So I, I do know that I do know that game on some level. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. We need to find a new us. <laughs> well, you know, by the uh, way, it was in a completely different. It, it actually is not a gaming thing. It was a completely different IP, for what it's worth. Huh. Um, and you know, it's funny because it you know certainly having. You know, having your book out there, um, you know, and being established in that way opens doors in some ways. You know, people um, are in a weird sort of way almost more inclined to grant you that interview. But to your point, all of a sudden the interview is now hmm. is, is censored, heavily censored. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. It's fair to put. Uh, Michael, do you want to um, say anything about the Dritz Visual Dictionary? Yeah. So, um, you know, so, uh, yeah, just it came out, what, like two weeks ago at this point? Um, so, um, I worked with, uh, DK and we all know DK as those wonderful, you know, visual encyclopedias and visual dictionaries that many of us grew up with that annotate everything. They have all these fine details, which by the way, is not easy when you're annotating a illustration that was never meant to be annotated. I will tell you that is not, not an easy thing to do. Like I, I, I that's a pauldron, I guess. And I, what's that? I don't know. So, um, <laughs> So uh, that came out about two weeks ago, and it kind of it's a it's a supplemental book to the um, the Legend of Dritz um, series. That, that, that's that's what it is. So we cover all the big characters, all the big locations, and a lot of general um, Forgotten Realms lore. Like it, it's it's actually as much a Forgotten Realms um, kind of uh, source book for uh, you know again these are these are kind of young adult um, you know uh, books. Kind of you know fourteen to eighteen is where they usually kind of. Um, live in the DK universe. Um, but yeah, it, it's basically kind of a, a supplemental book to tell you about the whole Dritz story and, and what he's about and what the Forgotten Realms is about and all the monsters he fights and all his companions. So, um, yeah, I, I'm really proud of the book came out a couple weeks ago. And, um, yeah, it's been a very busy, it's been a very busy couple of years between that book and, uh, the three more that I've got coming out late in this year. It was funny because I watched a YouTube video you did where you're like, it's the Dritz, Dritz, Visual dictionary. It's the it's the Dritz's. You know, like. <laughs> so I have to tell you, I I think R.A. Salvatore. I just I, I love his writing. I think he walks on writing as a fantasy no, walks on on water rather as a fantasy novelist. Um, I think he writes just tremendous work, work of great depth. Um, the my only complaint with with Bob Salvatore is that he writes names that I have a hell of a time hmm. pronouncing, and so that's my only complaint. Um, but uh, Dritz well, is and- Dritz is one of them. And and didn't he also like refuse to uh, actually say what the correct pronunciation of that name is? Because it's like nobody knows how to say it. <laughs> well, well, see, I because I always thought it was Drizzt, basically. Right. And um, but I had him as an instructor at um, Odyssey, and so he said Dritz, which sounds to me like it's he's reversed the T. And the yeah, D's. that's not how it's spelled at all. Is that some drow thing? Yeah, yeah, is no, that yeah, a drow that convention? Is how, I say it that way because that is how Bob says it. He says Dritz. Yeah. Um, Dritz. And so. So, so yeah, actually, David, to your point, that's exactly why I made that little video. Because <laughs> it occurred to me there was ninety-five ways to say it. I'm like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do like a, you know, kind of a fake blooper reel where I just say it in all the the wrong ways. So that was the fun of it. Yeah, that was awesome. One right, of so actually, also, oh, I would okay. say one of the things I really like about D and D Beyond is that, like, for uh, aside from character names, but like uh, all the different monsters and stuff that might have weird names, they actually have like a pronunciation button that you can click 
uh, on, I think, all of them. Uh, so you can be like, well, whatever whatever that weird demon name is, let me see. How do they say you say that? And you can just click it. Or, or like uh, the, 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 the say who again, uh, which is apparently how you say that. Uh, those uh, sort of shark people. Um, it's uh, That's not how I would have uh, ever pronounced that. But if you click the button, it says say who again. <laughs> well, and, you know, and, and David, you know, if you'll indulge me for a second, I, I certainly would love to plug my um, my upcoming uh, book, Vivian Van Tassel on the Secret of yeah, Midnight yeah. Lake. So that book is coming out at the end of August. Uh, that is a middle grade young adult fiction. So, you know, think Percy Jackson and uh, Keeper of the Lost Cities and things of that. And in fact, it's the same editor and same uh, publisher as Keeper of the Lost Cities, if anyone knows that one. Um, but I would like to think, and I believe... Um, the book is actually written for ages 8 through 12 and also ages 35 through 55. And what <laughs> I mean by that is um, uh, it is absolutely loaded. It's it's deeply inspired by real D&D lore. Um, and so, uh, uh, again, I, I'd like to think that this is something that gamers can play, can read alongside or even read to their kids, and they will find a completely different level of fun and interest in uh, things they might know about as as longtime uh, tabletop role playing gamers, uh, and then the kids kind of have a completely different experience and a and a kind of an, uh, in um, an introduction to to tabletop role playing game uh, through the book. Yeah, well, you were telling us before we started recording. I don't know how much you want to get into it here, but that it has sort of a connection to Gary Gygax and Lake Geneva and stuff like that. It, it, so yeah, it it was an idea I came up with when I was actually writing uh, Empire of Imagination, my Gary Gygax biography. And um, it's actually an idea I tripped on because um, I was studying at the time the idea that Gary used to wander around this abandoned sanitarium in Lake Geneva called the Oakwood Sanitarium. And I started studying these sanitariums in Lake Geneva. It turns out there was like a half dozen of them around town. There was a bunch of sanitariums in Lake Geneva. I thought it was such an interesting backdrop to this otherwise kind of mysterious, interesting resort town in southern Wisconsin uh, where D&D was born. Or where the co-creator lived, at least, and, and did a lot of his work. And so um, I tripped on this idea, and it occurred to me how interesting it would be if Gary didn't imagine these fantasy creatures, but he actually saw them with his own eyes. And I thought the backdrop of these sanitariums would be interesting to think, what if people were committed to these sanitariums because they were seeing delusions, in quotes, of creatures in the woods that were like bears with the face of owls, for example, <laughs> or perhaps a panther with tentacles coming out of its back, <laughs> right? And so um, I thought it was just an interesting uh, place to start, and that kind of led me down a long road. And so I'm very, I'm very proud of the product. And um, so, yeah, if anyone is interested in kind of middle-grade Fantasy fiction, uh, please check out Vivian Van Tassel and The Secret of Midnight Lake. Yeah, awesome. And then um, maybe finally, I want to ask Ben a, a question. So, um, and just to explain, so I emailed Ben asking if he wanted to be on this panel and saying, you know, we were going to be recording this before the movie came out. So he would need to watch mm -hmm. the movie, you know, watch this advanced screening. And then after I emailed him that, I checked in, you know, in, in Wisconsin or in, in Madison, huh. and there was only one screening and there were only two seats left in it. <laughs> so so I, I was like, screw it. It's only $12. I'll, I'll buy a ticket for him. And <laughs> so then I, I bought the ticket and forwarded it just in, just in case he needed it. And somehow he only saw my second email <laughs> and then responded and was like, oh, thank you for randomly buying me a ticket to this movie. <laughs> I, I, I can't go. But so I'm just curious. Um just uh, from your point of view, Ben, how did that, <laughs> what was your thought process? I there? was like, David Barkertley's the nicest person I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I haven't talked to him in like 
seven or eight months, but he's thinking about me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it must have been like, I really enjoyed that interview. I, I, it must really have <laughs> been great for him, too. I'm really glad we have this close like relationship, even though we haven't talked in it all. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I should explain that I've, I, I interviewed you one time, and that's otherwise we've never. Uh, yeah, yeah, spoken yeah. Other than you know, that. And, and and again, from my point of view, th- uh, the, the most remarkable thing about our prior interaction was for for me being on this show was like. Uh, Lifetime Achievement Award <laughs> unlocked. And I can say the same thing about being on with John Joseph Adams now as well, where, oh. you know, I had just been listening to this show for years and years and years. Um, so th- the day that you slid into my Twitter DMs, I'm like, my life has <laughs> changed. Uh, so then like half a year later to have you out of nowhere, send me a movie ticket. (laughs) I was like, I've leveled up. I I don't know what's going on with my karma, with my fate, but to have Dave doing that. (laughs) It was amazing. So I'm, I'm really, I'm glad I will gladly reimburse you the, the money you paid for that ticket. I'll tell you that. And maybe we we can edit this out if this is too sensitive a subject. But so you um you emailed me back and said uh you know oh I can't see it then uh, I'm taking my wife out for her her birthday, and then you saw my first email realizing that I was inviting you to be on Geeks Guide to the Galaxy <laughs> and got back and we're like let me see if I can reschedule with my wife. <laughs> you're, you're not you, you can keep this in that's fine she doesn't listen to this so okay. <laughs> that that is fair I I had to again I I teach. Uh, 12 to 14 year olds by day and uh and in education you know it's it's a a female heavy adult Mm. environment so i asked my co-teacher a who's a 39 year old woman i'm like so there's this podcast and my and i it 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 conflicts with my wife's surprise party what (laughs) should i do she's like (laughs) you go to your wife's surprise party i'm like okay that's what i'm gonna do so I'm, I'm really glad that this worked out and you know, I, had to, I had to literally go and kind of mic check myself with another woman to, to, to figure out exactly what the winning husband move was here. So I, I was willing to put my marriage on the line for you, David Barkertly. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's just, yeah, it's, it's so great that it turned out that there was another advanced greeting just a week later. Uh, yeah. so, uh, I know I, I was, I was ecstatic. Even, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm so glad this all worked out. This has been super fun. And uh, I think we're going to have to start getting into some final thoughts here. So, uh, John, final thoughts on this whole experience of watching Dungeons and Dragons mm. Honor Among Thieves. Yeah, I mean, it was it was just a breath of fresh air and uh, such a relief that it's actually good. And like uh, like uh, Mike and Ben, uh, I mean, I hope that this leads to a whole series of movies like this uh, about D&D and you know, also I share the sentiment that it would be great if, uh, more people, uh, you know, start checking out D and D. I mean, it's like my favorite thing in the world. So, um, you know, I'm excited about the possibility of more people playing it and, uh, uh, and, and actually just more people not thinking of it as like some sort of punchline of, of, about nerds, you know, like, I mean, that's pretty passe at this point, but you know what? I mean, it's like D and D still has a lot of that negative connotation for, for, for dummies who don't know what it is. Um, but uh, hopefully this will uh, stop some of that nonsense. Yeah. And again, John, we really appreciate you, uh, you know, getting an upper respiratory infection <laughs> at the movie and still <laughs> yeah. appearing on this podcast. And we'll wrap this up soon. You can go drink some tea or something. Anything for um, D&D, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Michael, final thoughts. 
Uh, yeah, I, I I thought the film was a trip. Um, it was it, the thrill ride, all that that stuff they put like on movie posters as quotes, right? Mm-hmm. It was all that. It, it was, um, it was hysterical. It was just really really fun, and it's what I needed for a D and D movie to be. You know, I think there's a lot of ways they could have gone here. I think they they chose almost all the right steps for at least this first big foray into a feature film. And I, I think it really will open up a lot of doors for the franchise and, and for the movie franchise in particular. Um, so I, I'm super excited about it. I do recommend everybody go see it. I thought it was great. Yeah. It's, it's like, again, it's a great comedy movie. And I mean, yeah, part of me wishes, you know, w- wishes there were a serious D and D movie, but a serious D and D movie. If I took my girlfriend's parents to it, I'm <laughs> sure they wouldn't like it, you know, yeah. it would just be for the hardcore fans. So this is a movie for everybody. And yeah, it's, it's, I think just what D and D needed at this, um, you know, at this point in its development, just what the cleric Um, ordered. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Uh, Ben, final thoughts. Within 18 months, we get a good Dune movie and a good D and D movie. (laughs) I don't know how our stars have aligned. Um, but yeah, I, I can't help, but just focus on, uh, what, this is going to mean for the brand and for the fandom. Cause I, again, I think the more people playing D and D not only, I, th- I think it's good for them. Uh, but I think it means that we're all going to get better, cooler, more stuff. Um, mm-hmm. and I, uh, you know, Vince Vaughn, Tom Morello, the big show. And one of the two game of Thrones creators were at Gary con this weekend. And again, if you don't know Gary con, it's the gaming convention held in honor of the passing of Gary Gygax. Um, but you know, it's, it's in Lake Geneva and it's gone from being this, this tiny gathering to, to one where again, you have, uh, Hollywood movie stars flying out to Lake Geneva for it. And they're, they're not there as special guests. They were there to game. Um, and you know, has, has, when was the last time Lake Geneva had that many movie stars in it? It was probably when there was a playboy club there. Um, (laughs) so I, I, I'm anxious to see as good as the movie was, I'm more excited to see what it means for the hobby, the fandom, the brand and our future history than anything else. Yeah, and absolutely. And speaking as someone who, you know, tried to organize or like my, my friends and I tried to organize a and d club at my high school <laughs> and the administration just like totally wouldn't allow it, you know, <laughs> because of the supposed, um, n- you know, nefarious influence of D&D or whatever. Like just to go from that to, um, you know, yeah, like like having such a huge mainstream hit movie and all these stars and everything. It does really feel like, you know, we won, you know. The nerds won. Oh, well, you know. good coda. We won. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Take that. <laughs> principles. <laughs> all right. I think that's a good note to end on. It was, so, it was so great talking to all you guys. This is super fun. We will have to do it again sometime. Uh, but for the moment, we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with John Joseph Adams, Michael Whitwer, and Ben Ricks. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thanks, Dave. Thank you, David. Always good to be here. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to John Joseph Adams, Michael Whitwer, and Ben Riggs for joining us on the show. This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoyed the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. 
And remember to check out the new podcast, The Afrom Davidson Universe, over at afromdavidson.com. Alright, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.